Chapter Three, Part Two of Victorian Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Victorian Literature by Clement Shorter. Chapter Three: The Historians, Part Two. eighteen o five to eighteen seventy five earl stanhope who did most of his historical work when as an expectant peer he was known as lord marne was a great friend of macaulay's in eighteen seventy he published a history of the reign of queen anne which began at the year seventeen o one and thus served as a connecting link between macaulay's history and his own larger work the history of england from the peace of utrecht down to the peace of versailles seventeen thirteen to seventeen eighty three the continuation of earl stanhope's narrative may be found in either mr lecky's eighteenth century or in william nathaniel massey's history of england under george the third eighteen o nine to eighteen eighty one mr massey brings us down to the peace of amiens in eighteen o one from which date harriet martineau leads us from eighteen forty six in a work history of the peace which is quite unworthy of her abilities the reign of victoria has been written by many hands not the least successful being the history of england eighteen thirty to eighteen seventy three by the reverend william nassau molesworth eighteen sixteen to eighteen ninety of rochdale the author also of a history of the church of england equally popular is the history of our own time eighteen thirty to eighteen ninety seven of justin mccarthy eighteen thirty onwards who has also written a history of the four georges and many popular novels nor must we forget the brilliant literary effort of alexander william kinglake eighteen eleven to eighteen ninety one who in his history of the war of the crimea has made a younger generation familiar with a struggle in which their fathers took so brave a part mr kinglake was for some years the liberal member for bridgewater his first literary effort eothen a volume of travels is scarcely less popular than his history by far the most important work however on english history in a period subsequent to that dealt with by macaulay is lecky's history of england in the eighteenth century a work of great thoroughness and thoughtfulness the eighth and concluding volume of which was published in eighteen ninety william edward hartpole lecky eighteen thirty eight onward who was educated at trinity college dublin which he now represents in parliament is one of the most brilliant and suggestive writers of our age his rise and influence of the spirit of rationalism and european morals from augustus to charlemagne as well as the history of the eighteenth century are justly popular eighteen o nine to eighteen eighty one it is impossible to enumerate all the important contributions to the historical study of the past few years but the history of scotland from the invasion of agricola to the revolution of sixteen eighty eight by john hill burton and the life and reign of richard the third by james gairdner must not be forgotten nor the history of the war in the peninsula by sir charles napier seventeen eighty six to eighteen sixty many writers have embodied the main conclusions of the historians we have named in brief but useful histories for the use of the more advanced schools 
the more successful of these are the reverend james frank bright and the late john richard green james frank bright eighteen thirty two onwards is master of university college oxford and his english history for the use of public schools is a work so lucidly and carefully written that it is entitled to be lifted out of the category of mere textbooks and to take rank as good literature still more is this true of green's short history of the english people john richard green eighteen thirty seven to eighteen eighty three was born at oxford and educated at magdalen college school and at jesus college for some time he was vicar of st philip's stepney his short history published in eighteen seventy four was speedily adopted in schools and had an enormous sale among general readers it was immediately recognized that a brilliant writer had appeared one who had assimilated all that was worthy in the work of laborious contemporary historians had himself made much study of original documents and had welded all together by the power of real genius a critic here and there devoted himself to discovering the errors mainly of dates which owing to the illness of the author disfigured the first edition but the popular instinct which declared this to be a great work was a sound one in the main its conclusions are just there is not a line of cheap sentiment or rhetorical claptrap in the book mr green soon afterwards enlarged his work and published it in four handsome volumes which he dedicated to his friends my masters in the study of english history bishop stubbs and professor freeman later on appeared the making of england and after his decease another volume the conquest of england written on his deathbed was published by his widow alice stopford green who has written town life in the fifteenth century sir archibald geikey the geologist once rendered a tribute to green for endeavouring to bring geological science to the aid of historical research but on the question of the teutonic element in our nation it has been urged that green follows his friends stubbs and freeman all too readily and ignores the evidence from anthropology in favour of the great prevalence of celtic blood in the english-speaking race i regret that my space will not permit me to write at length of the men who have studied so thoroughly sciences which have so much bearing upon history and who have written delightful books upon them i must be content merely to mention the names of william boyd dawkins who has written cave hunting and early man in britain and sir john lubbock banker and member of parliament who has written prehistoric times and the origin of civilization and the primitive condition of man also various books on natural science and some very inadequate literary essays nor must i forget edward burnett tyler's primitive culture and anthropology grant allen's anglo-saxon britain and edward clodd's childhood of the world childhood of religion and pioneers of evolution from such works as these it is but a very short step to the writings of max muller eighteen twenty three onwards friedrich max muller son of the german poet wilhelm muller was educated at the university of leipzig and made a special study of philosophy in germany for many years before he came to the land of his adoption in eighteen forty six appointed an oxford professor first of modern languages and later of comparative philology a science which he may almost be said to have created he has become an englishman both in speech and in writing 
Max Muller's most popular works are his interesting Lectures on the Science of Language and his Chips from a German Workshop, in which he deals not only with the common origin of the world's leading languages, but in a skilful and almost startling manner reconstructs, by the aid of language alone, the conditions out of which have risen the various religious and social systems of the early nations. The writers who have most prominently followed in Max Muller's footsteps as elucidators of primitive religious beliefs are Professor Sace and the Reverend Sir George Cox. 1846 onwards, Archibald Henry Sace, who succeeded Max Muller in the chair of comparative philology at Oxford, has written numerous books and treatises dealing with the Chaldean and other ancient nations, and has also published an annotated edition of Herodotus, noticeable chiefly for its unfavourable verdict on the father of history. Sir George Cox, 1827 onwards, whose mythology of the Aryan nations has provoked much adverse criticism from its extreme application of the solar theory to the interpretation of myth, epic, and romance, has also written an interesting history of Greece in two volumes. 1794 to 1871. The history of Greece, which may be considered one of the most satisfactory achievements of the Victorian era, is that by Grote, published in twelve volumes. George Grote was born at Clay Hill, near Beckenham, and was educated at the Charterhouse School. He early went into the banking house in Threadneedle Street, of which his father was one of the partners, but found time to devote himself to philosophy and history, and to write for the Westminster Review, the organ of philosophical radicalism. It was as a representative of this phase of thought that he was returned as Member of Parliament for the City of London in 1833. He sat in the House as one of a small body of philosophical radicals until 1841, bringing forward annually a resolution in favour of the ballot. He retired from parliamentary life to devote himself more energetically to his History of Greece, the first two volumes of which appeared in 1846. The twelfth and last, which takes us to the death of Alexander the Great, was published in 1856. During the same years, but unknown to Grote, Canop Thirlwall, 1797-1875, Bishop of St. David's, a former schoolfellow of his, was engaged upon the same task. Each acknowledged the superiority of his rival's work, and Grote said that he should never have written his, had Thirlwall's book appeared a few years earlier, but there can be little hesitation in assigning the higher place to Grote. Of Thirlwall, it may be said, however, that but for Grote, his history would have taken high rank, and would have been a welcome relief from the foolish but once popular work of William Mitford. Thirlwall is also interesting for having translated, in 1825, Schleiermacher's Essay on St. Luke, and thus first introduced German theology into England. Grote's history is a book of high educational value. In it we have all that is best in Herodotus, Thucydides, and the other ancient historians, added to the sound and weighty judgment of a clear-sighted modern critic, exceptionally free from prejudice. It was Grote's great destiny to free the English mind from the erroneous impression which had so long prevailed as to the real character of the Athenian democracy, 
and we cannot find elsewhere a truer or juster picture of Athens at the height of her power a great work on Greek history in later aspects than those of Grote and Thirlwall is a history of Greece from its conquests by the Romans to the present time by George Finlay seventeen ninety nine to eighteen seventy five Finlay fought in the Greek War of Independence and lived for the greater part of his life in Athens a number of clergymen besides dr. Thirlwall have shown an able grasp of classical history Dr. Arnold wrote a history of Rome based on Nibur which although interesting is scarcely worthy of so great a man Charles Merivale 1808 to 1893 Dean of Ely wrote an admirable summary of Roman history from the foundation of the city in BC 753 to the fall of Augustulus in AD 476 but his great work is the history of the Romans under the Empire which is indispensable for a thorough appreciation of Gibbon Henry Hart Millman 1791-1868 Dean of st. Paul's did good service to historical scholarship by his edition of Gibbon's pre-eminent work and by his own history of the Jews history of Christianity under the Empire and Latin Christianity the nine volumes of this last were called by Dean Stanley a complete epic and philosophy of medieval Christianity Milman is said to have described himself as the last learned man in the church But in the presence of so eminent a scholar as Mandel Creighton 1843 onwards Bishop of London the statement is meaningless Dr. Creighton's great work a history of the papacy from the great schism to the sack of Rome is of the highest value in the consecutive study of European history and so also is the work of another clergyman George William Kitchen 1827 onward Dean of Durham whose history of France previous to the revolution is very attractively written a writer who generalizes freely from the facts of history and whose generalizations were once very popular and according to Sir Mackenzie Wallace are still widely read in Russia was Henry Thomas Buckle 1821 to 1862 who published in 1857 the first volume of the history of civilization in England a second volume appeared in 1861 but the author died before he had completed his intended undertaking buckle unduly emphasizes the influence of national and moral laws upon the progress of civilization minimizes the influence of individuals and overlooks the momentous action of heredity a writer of equal importance with buckle was john addington simmons 1840 to 1893 whose renaissance in italy is a work of great literary merit and whose translation of cellini's autobiography has superseded roscoe's passing from historic italy to germany we may note that the holy roman empire of james bryce 1838 onwards created quite a furore as a prize essay at oxford and in its enlarged shape forms the only english sketch of german history of great literary merit mr bryce was some years ago announced to write a history of germany of more formidable dimensions but the glamour of parliamentary life and a seat in the cabinet have robbed us of a capable historian although we are without satisfactory german history we possess two very solid contributions to such a work with one of these Carlyle's Frederick the second I shall deal later the other is Sir John Robert Seeley 
1834 to 1895 life and times of stein or germany and prussia in the napoleonic age when this work appeared it was received with high commendation in germany but in england with the qualification that it had none of the literary charm of the author's earlier efforts to such criticism professor seeley he received the professorship of modern history at cambridge on kingsley's resignation in eighteen sixty nine replied in a series of papers entitled history and politics wherein he practically contended that it was the business of historians to be dull and that brilliant history writing was as a matter of fact little other than fiction still in his lectures on the expansion of england eighteen eighty three and a short history of napoleon eighteen eighty six he succeeded in making himself entirely interesting the books which gave sir john seeley his greatest fame he received a knighthood in eighteen ninety three were not however historical but in a sense theological and with him we find ourselves in the midst of the great religious controversies of the reign ecce homo a survey of the life and work of jesus christ was published anonymously in eighteen sixty five while censured on many sides on account of its alleged heterodoxy it drew from opponents unstinted admiration on account of its perfect literary workmanship one of these opponents was mr gladstone who ventured the prophecy that the author would at a later period write something from a more orthodox standpoint this prediction was not verified for in eighteen eighty two a further work natural religion by the author of echo homo showed still less sympathy with the supernatural side of religion mr gladstone who flung himself into this as into so many other controversies has a fame quite apart from any literary achievement but whatever posterity may say of his influence on the destinies of the nation which he has helped for so many years to rule it is certain that his powers as an author would have made the reputation of a man of less versatility 1809 onward william ewart gladstone the son of a lancashire merchant was born at liverpool into his political career it is not my province to enter his first literary work the state in its relations with the church was made famous through a review by macaulay later in life he indulged in theological controversy publishing an essay on ritualism and the vatican decrees mr gladstone's chief work is however his studies in homer in which he argues for the unity of the poem for the foundation in fact of its main incidents and for the definite personality of the author his contributions to periodical literature have been innumerable and only a few and those non-controversial and non-classical have been republished in his five volumes of gleanings mr gladstone's chief opponent in theological controversy cardinal newman has profoundly influenced his religious views in my opinion wrote mr gladstone many years after newman had become a roman catholic his secession from the church of england has never yet been estimated among us at anything like the full amount of its calamitous importance it has been said that the world does not know its greatest men neither i will add is it aware of the power and weight carried by the words and acts of those among its greatest men whom it does know the ecclesiastical historian will perhaps hereafter judge that this secession was a much greater event even than the partial secession of john wesley 
the only case of personal loss suffered by the church of england since the reformation which can be at all compared with it in magnitude 1801 to 1890 john henry newman was born in london and educated at a private school at ealing and at trinity college oxford inclined at first to the liberal christianity which men like waitley and millman were furthering among churchmen he was he said rudely awakened by two great blows illness and bereavement and he devoted himself to a lifelong opposition to what he has called the great apostasy liberalism in religion my battle he writes was with liberalism by liberalism i mean the anti-dogmatic principle and its developments from eighteen twenty eight to eighteen forty three he held the incumbency of st mary's church oxford and the influence which he then exerted was of the deepest moment for the future of religious life in england who says matthew arnold himself like his father before him one of the leaders of the movement which newman has hated so intensely who could resist the charm of that spiritual apparition gliding in the dim afternoon light through the aisles of st mary's rising into the pulpit and then in the most entrancing of voices breaking the silence with words and thoughts which were a religious music subtle sweet mournful i seem to hear him still saying after the fever of life after wearinesses and sicknesses fightings and despondings languor and fretfulness struggling and succeeding after all the changes and chances of this troubled unhealthy state at length comes death at length the white throne of god at length the beatific vision during these years at st mary's what is called the tractarian movement sprang to life a movement as we have said against broad churchism it was at the beginning of the movement on his way home from sicily in eighteen thirty three whilst pondering over the difficulties of the task he had undertaken that newman wrote the hymn lead kindly light which is now as popular in the most advanced and liberalized churches as it can be in those nearest to its author's religious standpoint the tracts for the times whence tractarians derive their name were written by newman harold froude pusey and others bishop bloomfield said that the whole movement was nothing but newmania the writers argued now in short papers now in elaborate treatises for the divine mission of the anglican church not till tract ninety was reached did the alarm of the protestant party manifest itself in any practical form in that tract newman declared that subscription to the thirty-nine articles was not inconsistent with the acceptance of roman catholic teaching on purgatory on the invocation of saints and on the mass the hebdomadal council of the university condemned the tract two years later newman resigned his position at st mary's and in eighteen forty five formally joined the church of rome according to disraeli anglicanism reeled under the shock and dean stanley remarked to a friend that the fortunes of the english church might have been very different had newman been able to read german in eighteen forty eight he was appointed head of the birmingham oratory and there he resided with one short break as rector of the roman catholic university of dublin for nearly forty years in eighteen seventy nine he was created a cardinal and his visit to rome and installation as a prince of the sacred college excited much attention in england although by temperament and inclination one of the least combative and most retiring of men 
cardinal newman found himself again and again in the thick of the argumentative fray at one time he was involved in a libel action by an ex-priest and ultra-protestant lecturer named father achille and this cost newman and his friends twelve thousand pounds at another time he was arguing with the foremost english statesman mr gladstone as to the probable loyalty of english roman catholics if the papacy and the english government were brought into collision in one great controversy of his life he was generally admitted to have achieved a success and this success is associated with an enduring literary work the autobiography which he calls his apologia pro vita sua reviewing froude's history of england in macmillan's magazine january eighteen sixty four charles kingsley charged newman with being careless about truth and with teaching that cunning and not truth-seeking was the acceptable method of the roman catholic clergy brought to bay by newman kingsley contradicted himself in an amazing fashion and even the most enthusiastic protestants were compelled to admit that the clever novelist was no match for the trained dialectician mrs kingsley in her charming life of her husband practically admits that he was worsted in the conflict and j a froude his brother-in-law wrote quote, kingsley entirely misunderstood newman's character newman's whole life had been a struggle for truth he had neglected his own interests he had never thought of them at all he had brought to bear a most powerful and subtle intellect to support the convictions of a conscience which was superstitiously sensitive his single object had been to discover what were the real relations between man and his maker and to shape his own conduct by the conclusions at which he arrived to represent such a person as careless of truth was neither generous nor even reasonable End quote. the final outcome of the controversy was the publication of apologia a work which alike in beauty of style and devotion of spirit must be assigned a very high place in religious literature my space is too limited to pass in review or even to name the thirty-six volumes which contain the writings of this eloquent preacher and teacher his dream of gerontius and verses on various occasions show his high qualities as a poet his apologia callista and essays in aid of the grammar of assent display his genius as a prose stylist in callista a sketch of the third century he pictures a beautiful greek girl who becomes a convert to christianity after a severe struggle between human affection and religious faith the grammar of assent is an apology for christianity far above the narrow controversies in which the author took so distinguished a part the question whether cardinal newman or carlyle has been the most influential personality in victorian literature will be largely decided by the temperament of the critic mr swinburne looking at them both from a standpoint of antagonism to the priestly proclivities of the one and to the tyrannical proclivities of the other apostrophized them jointly in the well-known lines quote, with all our hearts we praise you whom ye hate high souls that hate us for our hopes are higher and higher than yours the goal of our desire though high your ends be as your hearts are great End quote newman indeed left england more dominated by ritual than in any other period of its history the roman church more powerful than ever before the new high church party in the establishment a great institution with the rival prime ministers mr gladstone and lord salisbury among its supporters 
and a taste for ritual conspicuous in the chapels of the nonconformists and yet with all this carlyle was the more dominant personality end of chapter three part two